Of all the places where democracy is problematic, I wouldn't have thought that it would be in my own country. On February 29th, Academy Distinguished Visitor Francis Fukuyama delivered the Marcus Bierich Lecture in the Humanities at the American Academy. His lecture was entitled, Democracy's Failure to Perform. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I'm Gerd Kasper, the president of the American Academy, and I welcome you to the Marcus uh, Bierich Lecture. The American Academy in Berlin established the Marcus Bierich Distinguished Visitorship in the Humanities in order to facilitate access to important scholarship and academic debate. The lecture is named for Marcus Bierich, former CEO of Bosch, about whom it was said at the time of his death, philosophers in management are rare. Marcus Bierich was one. And I'm very pleased that his daughter, Nora Bierich, and others who have supported this visitorship are present tonight. I turn to our guest. More remarkable than Frank Fukuyama's Fukuyama as a public intellectual, than his government career, his academic appointments, now as my colleague at Stanford, his many books is the fact that Frank has hobbies he takes pretty seriously. He is a photographer, rides, God forbid, a motorcycle, and makes furniture. Not any old furniture, but reproductions of what we call Federalist design. He even does inlay work. So if you have any wishes in owning Federalist furniture, he is the man to turn to, and uh, I'm sure he would give you a good prize. <laughs> he is also the director of the Center on Democracy, Development, and Rule of Law at Stanford's Freeman Spokely Institute for International Studies. Since coming to Stanford, Frank has been primarily concerned with political order and governance. His two most recent books have been The Origins of Political Order and Political Order and Political Decay. In reality, these two books are two volumes of one book amounting to more than 1,200 pages. I can say with authority, having read them, that they are greatly rewarding as they tackle throughout history what is a macro question down to some micro detail. When the second book was published in 2014, The Economist wrote, a basic rule of intellectual, only journalists can write, I'm sorry, there must be some here, but only the self-important journalists of The Economist would write this way. A basic rule of intellectual life is that celebrity destroys quality. Well, I'm not sure that this is invariably so, but since I agree with The Economist's punchline, I will continue to quote. Superstar academics abandon libraries for the lecture circuit. Too many speeches must be given and backs slept, slapped to leave time for serious thought. Francis Fukuyama is a glorious exception to this rule. Now, you must admit, coming to that punchline was worth reading all the other stuff, whether it was correct or not. 
Francis, uh, Professor Fukuyama first became famous with his 1992 book, The End of History and the Last Man. Its core thesis appeared earlier in a 1989 essay in the National Interest. Its title, The End of History, may be among the most superficially bandied about in publishing history. But then knowledge of Hegel and Nietzsche is not that widespread, the knowledge of Marx not widespread any longer. But I would like to say this afternoon, uh, 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 Frank and I met with President Gauck, who was interested in seeing, in meeting and talking uh, with Mr. Fukuyama. And uh, I can say to you that not only does Mr. Gauck remember the end of history, but he accurately un had understood it, and he still agreed with it. Uh, so this was, for, at least for me, a very satisfying and gratifying experience, I hope for you too, uh, Frank. I'm not going to set the record straight about all the th wrong things said about the book. Frank himself does that much better than I could do, for instance, in the afterword to the 2006 paperback edition. However, when taking another look at this extraordinarily rich and complex, if at times perhaps a touch hyperbolic, book, I came across what I shall call an adumbration, not a prediction, an adumbration that is worth bringing to your attention as it was written in 1992. I quote, there is at present a constant flow of people from countries that are poor and unstable to those that are rich and secure that has affected virtually all states in the developed world. This flow constantly increasing in recent years, could be suddenly accelerated by political upheavals in the historical world. Fukuyama then goes on to mention how difficult it is for liberal democracies to bar immigrants because it is so hard to formulate any just principles for exclusion that does not seem or nationalist thus violating those universal principles to which liberal democracies are committed. Pretty good, Frank, pretty good. And I asked him uh, last night whether he remembered this. He had no recollection whatsoever. Uh, that's also pretty good. You say important things and don't remember them. Incidentally, you should also know that our speaker's doctoral thesis at Harvard was on Soviet threats to intervene in the Middle East. Okay. Uh, at the time uh, I left Stanford for Berlin, Frank's office and my office were across a corridor from one another. Since he has become a center director now, he has moved. But wherever he may be located, he is an outstanding, wonderful colleague. Welcome, Frank. So thank you uh, very much. That was a wonderfully generous 
introduction. As Gerhardt said, it's been a delight, really, to be uh, a colleague of his uh, in the years that I've been at Stanford, and I must say we miss him terribly. Uh, and uh, we were upset that the American Academy stole him, and we want him back. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> because uh, he is really an invaluable part of our team uh, at my center and at the institute uh, where I work. So we are eagerly awaiting your return, Gerhardt, and Regina as well. Uh, so um, let me uh, explain to you what I'm going to talk to you about today. Um, so there is a crisis going on in the world over democracy, so I want to explain the uh, dimensions of that and some of the reasons why I think that is occurring. Uh, this being the American Academy, I think you will probably excuse me if I actually talk about the United States uh, a certain amount because of all the places where democracy is problematic, I wouldn't have thought that it would be in my own country. But uh, this year has been a very, very peculiar uh, political year, and we're unfortunately not out of it yet. So uh, we will, uh, and I suspect, have plenty of time in the uh, question and answer period to talk about this. Uh, so the question, uh, is democracy in decline, I think has been in the minds of many people. There is a special interest of the Journal of Democracy. Uh, that It's a journal published by the National Endowment for Democracy in Washington devoted to the subject in which I had an essay. And in fact, if you want to read a written version of what I'm going to talk to you tonight about, uh, it's in that January 2015 issue. Uh, but I think that uh, we are, in fact, going through what my colleague Larry Diamond labels a democratic recession. We need a little bit of context for this. So uh, between the uh, early 1970s and the mid-2000s, we experienced what my professor at Harvard, Samuel Huntington, labeled the third wave of democratization. Uh, in 1970, there were approximately 35 electoral democracies in the world, but beginning with the Spanish and Portuguese transitions and continuing through Latin America and then, in a way, culminating in the fall of the Berlin Wall uh, in 1989, the number of democracies around the world expanded steadily. Uh, and even today, uh, the number, depending on how you measure democracy, stands at about 110 to 115. So we went from about a third of the world's countries having some form of electoral uh, contestation to two-thirds of the world uh, experiencing that. But there is no question that we're living in a tough time for democracy right now. Uh, Freedom House that publishes a numerical measure of uh, political rights and, and civil rights every year uh, has recorded an aggregate decline uh, in the overall uh, level of democracy throughout the world for nine years uh, running. Uh, behind these uh, uh, numerical shifts, I think you're seeing uh, several things happening. So one of them is the fact that there are a lot of uh, now, or there, there are a number of big, powerful non-democracies that are on the move, particularly uh, Russia and China. Uh, they have territorial ambitions, they look like they're successful, uh, and they're being imitated in other parts of the world, or they're being looked up to uh, and admired. 
there is authoritarian learning. Uh, there's been adaptation by authoritarian governments. I think both Russia and China were frankly freaked out by the color revolutions, uh, like the Orange Revolution in Ukraine or the Rose Revolution in Georgia, these attempted grassroots uh, expressions of popular unhappiness with authoritarian uh, regimes, and they've reacted, they've adjusted. I think Mr. Putin's behavior uh, in the last several years is directly the result uh, of his worry that an orange revolution uh, would be replicated in Moscow itself. And this almost happened after the uh, last time that he was elected uh, president, his second uh, uh, go around as president, when you had you know, a couple hundred thousand uh, young Russians out in the streets. And so that has been motivating him. The Chinese uh, similarly do not want uh, any of this kind of instability. Uh, many authoritarian countries around the world had passed laws restricting civil society. Uh, they're virtually carbon copies of one another. They don't want certainly foreign funding, but even domestic groups that organize any form of collective action have been uh, actively, uh, actively suppressed. And I think um, here in Europe, uh, you're hearing some very unusual things. What I thought was remarkable about this uh, speech of Viktor Orban in Romania uh, uh, a couple of years ago, uh, I, I'm sorry, no, no, he's from Hungary, but he gave a speech actually in Bucharest. Uh, so Viktor Orban's uh, speech in Romania uh, didn't, I mean, he actually made a call for illiberal democracy. He said that the model is not liberal democracy, it is a different form uh, of democracy that is much more controlled and majoritarian and not uh, really the kind of democracy that we've understood either in North America or uh, in the European Union. And so there is a growing self-confidence on the part of these authoritarian regimes, uh, a great deal of pushback. Now, why is this happening? I think there are basically uh, three reasons. So the first really has to do with uh, failures in developed democracies. I think that ultimately, uh, you know, what supported the third wave of democratization was the perceived success of democracy in the parts of the world where you had developed democracies, that is to say, uh, Europe and the United States. Both of these regions have had major financial crises, economic setbacks, high levels of employment in the past uh, decade. The United States, I think, uh, complemented this by making some very big mistakes in foreign policy and the invasion of Iraq and other things that uh, it undertook um, uh, in uh, recent years. Uh, the second thing has to do with the perceived success of authoritarian uh, regimes, uh, and particularly China. I think that China, in fact, has become the outstanding model for a country that is quite successful at modernization, uh, really uh, unlike Russia, not dependent on a single commodity uh, coming out of the ground, but really uh, a modern, you know, well-balanced uh, economy that yet is under the heels of a very authoritarian uh, dictatorship. And so that, again, affects the uh, perceptions. But the final issue is the one that I want to develop at greater length, which is democracy's failure to perform. Uh, and I think that, in a sense, that has been the crisis that not just new democracies uh, or would-be democracies like Ukraine have been suffering from, but also developed ones, uh, including my own country, the United States. Uh, so um, 
Me being a professor, I'm going to have to give you some definitions here in order to set a conceptual framework for what I want to, uh, what I want to talk about. Uh, in my book, I've argued the book that uh, Gerhard referred to, uh, I say that there's really three separate components of a modern political system. The first is the state. The state, uh, according to Max Weber, is a legitimate monopoly of force over a defined territory. I think that's a very good definition. Uh, it, what it means is basically that states are about power. States are about being able to generate power and to use it to protect their community from external and internal threats, uh, to enforce laws, and to deliver basic services, infrastructure, education, health, uh, uh, the kinds of things that people expect uh, in a modern society. The second pillar is rule of law. Now, you can distinguish between what is sometimes called rule by law, in which law is simply used as commands of the executive. That's what the Chinese have. The Communist Party lays down laws that people have to obey. That is not rule of law. Rule of law exists only when the executive, the sovereign, the prince, the king, the prime minister also falls under the same laws that apply to other people uh, in the society. And therefore, the state is about creating and using power, and the rule of law in the most fundamental sense is a limitation of power. It means that power cannot be used arbitrarily, but must be used in conformity with generally accepted rules reflecting the values of the underlying society. Then finally, there is democratic accountability, which we understand as free and fair, multi-party, periodic uh, free and fair elections. Uh, the purpose of these procedures is to guarantee substantive accountability, meaning the government ought to serve the interests of the whole community and not just the elite that is running the government. So in a way, a modern political system is a kind of miracle because it both generates a huge amount of power. If you think about, say, the power of the American presidency with nuclear weapons and all of the other resources at, at the president's disposal, but that power must be constrained by these other two institutions, the rule of law on the one hand and democratic accountability on the other. And so a just and successful modern system has to have balance if you have only the state uh, without the inst institutions of constraint, you have a dictatorship, that's China. China has a pretty good, strong state, has no rule of law, and of course, no democracy. So it's a dictatorship. On the other hand, if you only have the institutions of constraint, but no state, you get something like Nigeria or Afghanistan, where you know you have some degree of democratic legitimacy, some degree of law, but a completely weak state that cannot meet the needs of uh, of its uh, citizens. Final definition is the difference between what Weber called a patrimonial state and what he called a modern state. A patrimonial state is a state where the rulers believe they own the political system and basically are in the business of extracting resources from the rest of the society using politics as their uh, instrument. Uh, so when you had kings and queens uh, or emperors, you know, you could literally give away a province to your daughter as a wedding present uh, because you owned that territory. It was a dynastic possession. Today, we uh, nobody really pretends uh, that they own countries outright. So we have what political scientists label neo-patrimonialism, where you have the outward form of a modern uh, country with, you know, presidents and 
season and the like. But the reality is that the elites are in it to extract resources. They want to go into politics in order to enrich themselves uh, and their families. By contrast, a modern state uh, is impersonal, meaning that your relationship to the state does not depend on whether you're a friend or a relative or you know a sidekick of the of the of the president. Uh, it simply depends on your status as um, uh, as a citizen. Uh, now. This is a really important point. Uh, I think the, the Western world, and particularly the United States, has focused on the constraint pillars, particularly the democracy pillar, in its attempt to spread institutions, uh, like-minded institutions around the world. Americans, in particular, really care about uh, democracy. They like elections. Um, but it turns out that the really difficult act of political institution building is actually not holding free and fair elections because that goes on in quite a few countries and we've got the means of monitoring elections and, and, and helping that process along. The really difficult political transition is the one between a patrimonial or a neo-patrimonial state and a modern state. That is the critical thing that really I think has become the new dividing line uh, in world politics. So let me give you a couple of, oh, and well, so there, there are several actually illustrations of this. Uh, you simply look at what the United States did in Afghanistan and Iraq, where we were trying to create you know, some form of liberal democracy in both of those places. The democratic part of it, you know, we, we, it worked okay. Uh, we got elections or election-like events in both places to take place where you had leaders uh, elected that had some degree of democratic legitimacy, where the United States failed utterly was to create modern states. So in neither of these places do you have a government that is capable of protecting its own citizens uh, or is you know, not essentially a form of kleptocracy in which corruption is rife you know, at, at all levels of the government. The United States invested a huge amount of uh, its own treasure and lives in trying to bring this about, and I think it was a almost complete uh, failure. And I think that that uh, division between patrimonial states and modern states is really the dividing line in much of world politics. So Ukraine is, a, is I think, an illustration of this. Um, you had a democratic revolution back in 2004, the Orange Revolution, that failed to go on to the next stage, which was to actually develop a modern state. Uh, it remained a kleptocracy in the hands of a number of oligarchs. It was highly corrupt, and as a result of that, Mr. Yanukovych was reelected in a free and fair election in 2010. And then all these young people had to come out in Maidan Square again to get him out of power a second time. Uh, and so this should make people that are residents of the European Union actually proud and happy that what they wanted, you know, the issue was that he switched the uh, uh, away from, from uh, EU accession to aligning with Russia. What did that choice mean? It wasn't a choice over democracy. Everybody admitted that Yanukovych was democratically elected. What that choice meant was the choice between living in a world of modern states in which there's a clear distinction between public interest and private interest and where the state is supposed to serve public interest. That's the European Union. That's what the European Union represented to all of those you know, pro-democracy, 
protesters in Maidan Square that were taking all of those personal risks. They did not want to be sucked into this Russian-style kleptocracy, which is what uh, Yanukovych and all of these other uh, oligarchs behind the throne uh, represented. All right? So that uh, is really the issue that we have with Mr. Putin right now. If there is an election in Russia today, even though it's not a free you know, and fair I mean, you, you, he manipulates elections and the media. I mean, all of that's true. But there's no question that he's popular. There's no question that majority of Russians would vote for him uh, for president today. So what's wrong with that regime? The fact is that it is a kleptocracy in which the big players are basically in it, you know, to enrich themselves from Mr. Putin all the way down to, you know, uh, all of his local cronies on the ground. That's the big issue. Now, the failure of democracy to perform in that state function of providing basic services has also uh, plagued and delegitimated other existing democracies. Uh, take the example of India. So India, since independence, has actually been a very good democracy with one brief interlude uh, in the 1970s during the uh, emergency. There is a free press. It's very competitive. There's a lot of political competition, changes between major parties uh, that contest things all the time. In the late 1990s, uh, there was a study that was done by Jean Drez, who is an Indian activist of uh, schools, elementary schools, in a number of northern uh, Indian states in which he found that almost 50% of school teachers were being paid to be teachers and were not showing up for work. They just weren't showing up in the classroom. So nobody in India thinks this is a good thing. There's a big hue and cry. Uh, the press is very critical. The government, the opposition parties say, you've got to fix this. So they spend a number of years in all sorts of different reforms. They try to put little video surveillance cameras in every classroom and so forth. They do another survey 10 years later. And what do you think the percentage is? It basically hasn't moved. There's still almost 50% of school teachers aren't showing up for work. This is a bad thing for India. <laughs> you know, it's a really bad thing when your teachers don't come to your classrooms. Uh, and it's something that everybody wants to solve. And it seems to be one of those things that somehow is beyond the capacity of a contemporary Indian government uh, to solve. And I think one of the reasons they voted for Mr. Modi uh, now already like a year and a half ago, was that they were tired of this feckless democracy that couldn't build infrastructure, couldn't get teachers to show up in the classroom, and they wanted some strong leader that would do this. And unfortunately, I'm not sure that, you know, he's kind of strong in the wrong places. Uh, he He's really not, uh, in fact, uh, delivering on that, all right? So I don't think it's going to destabilize democracy in India, but it makes the quality of life uh, in India uh, you know, very poor. Uh, you're not educating people in the way that you ought to be. So final, uh, final example is very close to home, uh, which has to do with the euro crisis. So of course, Greece uh, could not uh, manage its fiscal accounts in the years leading up to, uh, up to the, uh, the crisis. Why did this happen? Well, there are a number of you know, I'm not going to rehearse all the arguments about the poor design of the Eurozone and, and so forth. But if you look at Greek politics, again, in a certain way, uh, there is a relationship between Greek democracy and what happened. So the regime of the colonels, the authoritarian regime of the colonels, is displaced by a genuine democracy in 1974. Uh, Pesach and New Democracy, the two 
uh, center um, left and center right parties exchange power on numerous occasions in the decades uh, since that. But Greece remains essentially what we political scientists call a clientelistic uh, political system, which means that with every change in parties, the entire public sector would empty out and the party, you know, the new party in power would put its own party workers in uh, these positions of uh, authority. Uh, and because Greek civil servants could not be fired, uh, it wasn't just a wholesale change. And I mean, the, the size of the bureaucracy, you know, continued to grow to the point where they had, you know, on the eve of the crisis, something on the order of seven times the per capita number of civil servants that Britain did, you know. Uh, um, and so that was, you know, a fundamental reason underlying their uh, their fiscal problem, and it is one thing that they do not want to change. I mean, they've considered selling the Parthenon, but giving up this ability to distribute political, you know, government offices through patronage is such a core part of the way that the parties operate that that's been, you know, the real source of resistance. So again, um, uh, there is a problem of governance, a deep problem in the quality of the state, uh, in this case linked to... Um, uh, in, in the I mean, I guess what I'm saying is that democracy actually, in in these cases, is not a solution. Uh, in it has been a certain extent a part of the problem. Now, I'm going to switch over and talk a little bit historically uh, about the United States because I think it actually might give us some insight into both the origins of state weakness and also some of the solutions. Uh, and if I can give a very schematic history. So Donald Trump, which I'm sure is on your minds, is not a new phenomenon. <laughs> uh, he actually represents a strand of American populism that has been around for a very long time. Uh, in the immediate aftermath of the, uh, the ratification of the Constitution, the creation of the United States, American government was a very elite-driven thing. Most, it was very small. Most of the people that worked in the American government uh, were graduates of Harvard and Yale. They came from this planter gentry elite in Virginia, Massachusetts, and so forth. This all began to change in the 1820s as one state after another opened up the franchise to all white males. The United States was really the first country to have universal white male franchise. They did it a good 70 years before Britain, uh, you know, did the same thing. Uh, and the um, politicians faced this problem, how do I get um, voters to the polls in a society where the average level of education probably was about fourth grade, people were living on isolated farms, it was not an urbanized society, uh, and so forth. And that's when they invented the political party, uh, and that's also when they invented clientelism, meaning you exchange a vote uh, for a job in the post office or something of that sort. Uh, the critical election where this really kicked into place was in 1828. Uh, Andrew Jackson ran against John Quincy Adams. John Quincy Adams was a Boston Brahmin. He was the son of the second president of the United States. He was a graduate of Harvard University. He traveled extensively in Europe. He could speak a number of European languages. Uh, Andrew Jackson was uh, a frontiersman from rural Tennessee. He was of Scotch-Irish uh, descent. He was a brawler, an Indian fighter, heavy drinker. Uh, he drove the Seminoles and the Cherokees out of their native uh, 
territories, and he was the victor of the Battle of New Orleans in the War of 1812, which propelled him into uh, national politics, and he beat the Boston Brahmin uh, because of this new opening up of the electorate, because ordinary, ordinary Americans could identify with Andrew Jackson, they could not identify with the Harvard-educated John Quincy Adams. Uh, and that's where the populist tradition really starts. He was very suspicious of a national bank. He really didn't want a strong federal government. And so that, you know, so he was the Donald Trump of the 1820s. Uh, he was calling on those same wellsprings of democratic populism that was very anti-elitist and very distrustful of the existing elites that had been running the country up to that point. He gets elected, says two things. First, I won the election. So therefore, I should appoint who gets to work in the U.S. government. And secondly, uh, he didn't use quite these terms, but he said, in effect, it doesn't take a genius to run the American government. Any ordinary American can do this. And this is what opens up a 100-year period in American history that goes under the name of the spoils system or the patronage system, in which virtually every job in the U.S. government from the federal level down to your local fourth-class postmaster was, was, was given out as a result of a payment by a politician to some political uh, supporter, which naturally leads to very corrupt political machines like Tammany Hall in New York City and the like. Now, the question that I think faces many young democracies uh, is how do you get out of this system of pervasive corruption? If you look at Mexico, Indonesia, Brazil, uh, all of these countries have a system like this in which there's a large degree of corruption and a distribution of government offices that weakens uh, state quality because you're giving uh, important positions to political hacks as payoffs for political support, right? Uh, and when we look down on countries like that saying, oh, they're very corrupt, they don't know what they're, you know, they don't know what modern good government looks like, you know, I think, especially if you're an American saying this, you just don't know your own history because this was exactly the nature of American government uh, back in that period. So how did it happen that the United States uh, eliminated this system? It was, so if in some sense the system had been created by American democracy, it was solved by American democracy. In the 1880s, the country was undergoing a massive social transformation as a result of technology. The railroads were the internet of their era. They were knitting together the country in a vast continental-sized market in which farmers in Kansas and Iowa could ship their crops to Europe uh, you know, on the new uh, transportation systems that were being created. Country was urbanizing, and there are a lot of new middle-class professionals that did not like this old, corrupt, inefficient system of government that had been created under the patronage system, and there was a big grassroots movement to fix it. Now, none of the incumbent members of Congress in the 1880s had any interest in political reform whatsoever. They had no interest in good government because why did they get elected in the first place? It was because of their ability to give out offices as campaign favors, right? So this is the this is the big problem in political reform is it's not because people don't understand what a modern system of government is. It's because the incumbent power holders do not want things to be different. And you cannot get them out of power unless you create a political movement to displace them. In this case, there's a f an accident, which was 
Uh, James Garfield gets elected in 1882 as president of the United States. He's immediately shot by a would-be office seeker who thinks he should be the consul, appointed the consul to France. He hasn't gotten the job, so he's angry, and he shoots the president. The president dies, and Congress is now sufficiently embarrassed that the president of the U.S. has been assassinated because of the patronage system. And so they pass something called the Pendleton Act that for the first time actually puts uh, the civil service on a merit basis. You have to take a civil service examination in order to be appointed to a government office. The American system being what it is, it's a very slow process until most federal officials are actually appointed on the basis of expertise or, you know, an exam. Uh, but that's really how the transformation happens. It is a profoundly political act, will not happen in the absence of grassroots support together with strong political leadership from the top. And in those years, uh, the U.S. was very fortunate to have leaders like Theodore Roosevelt or Woodrow Wilson that actually cared uh, about this uh, issue. And that's how reform happened. If it's going to happen in India or Brazil or Mexico or another developing country uh, at the present moment, that's how it's got to happen there as well. It's got to happen as a result of a political process. So uh, I'd now like to turn to the United States today because I think that we have not returned to this clientelistic system uh, of the 19th century, but we've returned to some version of political decay, uh, which I think has been affecting uh, our politics and really making democracy not perform well in the United States. And I would say that it's the collision of several things. Uh, so some of them are going on in American society. Uh, one of them is simply polarization, right? Uh, in American politics for most of the 20th century, the two parties, the Republicans and the Democrats, overlapped very substantially. Uh, this is something actually political scientists are pretty good at measuring. Uh, beginning in the 1990s, they began to pull apart, and today there is zero overlap between the parties whatsoever in terms of ideology. So the most liberal Republican is considerably more conservative than the most conservative Democrat. So the parties have become actually more like European parliamentary parties in terms of ideological uh, homogeneity, and this in turn reflects a sorting of Americans by, you know, residential neighborhood. In fact, uh, one of there's a political scientist at Stanford that did a study that showed that, you know, in terms of who Americans want their child to marry. They, carry, they care much more about them marrying someone from the other political party than they do someone from a different race or religion or you know, ethnic group. Uh, uh, this polarization has become very you know, uh, personal uh, in a sense. So that's one thing that's going on. Another thing that's going on is the coalescing of very well-resourced and very well-organized interest groups. Now, a lot of these are associated with corporations and banks, uh, you know, that have a lot of the money, but they're also public sector unions. You know, every disease in the United States has an interest group that lobbies for more, you know, federal money uh, supporting research on that uh, disease. And the, of course, in a, a, a democracy has to respond to interest groups. I mean, that's a fundamental right of citizens to band together to push for their uh, interests. But I think the process is now subject to so much money and so much professionalization that overall it, you know, in the aggregate, it becomes very unrepresentative. And I think that's one of the things that 
has fundamentally convinced many Americans that the system is stacked against them, that if you are a member of Congress, you have to listen to these powerful lobbyists and you don't listen to, uh, you don't listen to ordinary citizens. All right, so that's on the side of society. Uh, on the, on the uh, institutional side, we have a very different kind of political system from other developed democracies. Founding fathers were very suspicious of uh, centralized uh, executive power, and they created a system of checks and balances deeply embedded in the Constitution that check that power. So you've got two powerful houses of Congress, separate uh, houses. Uh, you've got a separately elected president. You've got a judiciary that can overturn uh, legislative acts. And then you've got devolution to state and local uh, levels. And we've been adding... Uh, new checks all the time that aren't in the Constitution, such as senatorial holds where any one of 100 senators can block any executive branch appointment uh, they want. And so currently there's a backlog of something like, you know, 60 uh, uh, ambassadors and federal judges, you know, that simply will not get through the Senate because some individual senator uh, wants to stop that. Uh, and so when you put these two together, the institutions plus the polarization plus the powerful interest groups, you get this situation that I call vetocracy, meaning rule by veto, where the way our system is organized, a small, uh, powerful minority group can block action by the whole community uh, simply because the system, the institutional rules privilege them. So, you know, the American uh, corporate tax rate is 35%. It's much higher than the average uh, for the OECD. Uh, every tax expert in the country, both Republicans and Democrats, agree that that nominal rate ought to be lowered, and then you should get rid of all the special subsidies and tax exemptions, uh, tax expenditures in our 10,000-page disgraceful tax code. You cannot do this in the current circumstances because the individual interests that would be hurt by getting rid of the special privileges are so well organized that despite the fact that everybody in principle agrees that the common good would be served by this kind of tax reform, you, you just can't bring it uh, about. And so uh, you've got many, you know, uh, <laughs> Congress has not passed a budget under the, its own rules of regular order in over a decade. And in fact, the only reason we got a budget passed this year is that John Boehner uh, quit. You know, the last thing he did as Speaker of the House was to get this budget through, and then he quit because he knew that the Republicans would never reelect him, you know, having actually voted for a budget. <laughs> uh, and it kind of indicates, you know, the, the degree of, um, you know, of uh, deadlock uh, in the country. Now, one final thing I want to point out, which has really been brought home by the rise of Trump and uh, what's, um, you know, this extraordinary uh, campaign season is what's happened to the white working class in the United States. And there's actually now been a number of books written because there's a lot of data that's been uh, collected on what's been happening to this group. Uh, so as you're probably aware, they've not done well. Uh, in terms of real incomes, male workers uh, are actually learning, earning less than they were, not just in 2008 before the crisis, but actually you know, than they were in the 1970s when it was their fathers that were employed. Uh, but in a way, the worst thing are the social concomitants of that loss of income and, and status. 
Uh, drug use uh, is an epidemic uh, among the white working class. It turned out in the New Hampshire primary, and I think all the candidates were surprised by this, the single biggest thing on the minds of these voters in the, in the primary, and by the way, New Hampshire is a state that's probably 99% white, right? So the thing that was foremost in their mind was heroin addiction because it's an epidemic you know, among uh, ordinary Americans uh, in that state as it is in rural Indiana or Kansas or any number of places that you don't associate with that kind of dysfunction. The number of children growing up in single parent families for working class uh, uh, Americans uh, is now 70%. Uh, you know, in the 1980s, the number of African Americans growing up in single parent families hit 70%. And at that point, everybody said, this is a major crisis, you know, uh, in, in the black underclass. There was a huge debate about that. Uh, but this group, you know, uh, of white workers is now experiencing that. And so to me, it doesn't seem unreasonable when you go to a voter like that, when Donald Trump says, I want to make America great again, they remember that America was great in the time of their father or maybe their grandfather, when you know, most white males had a decent job in a manufacturing sector, was earning probably you know, twice as much as they are in uh, real terms now, had a lot of security, uh, a lot of so social support, and lived in communities that were socially coherent, and they don't do that anymore. And so you say, well, why is there so much anger in the United States? Well, you know, I think that's part of the reason uh, why. And neither political party has helped them, really. Uh, the Republicans basically have been pushing for open immigration, free trade, all of these things that have been helping to erode, you know, their, their real incomes. And the Democrats, you know, have been caught up in identity politics. So they care about, you know... Uh, uh, gay marriage, environmentalism, feminism, uh, you know, catering to different kinds of ethnic groups. And the one ethnic group that they don't have any appeal for are white working class, you know, this new kind of white uh, under, which is rapidly becoming a white uh, underclass. And that's why I think you get a anti-establishment politician, you know, that can feed on that anger. Now, something else is going on also because it's not just this group uh, that is supporting Donald Trump. I mean, he does seem to have some traction with, uh, you know, with other groups in American society uh, as well. But, you know, it's a problem that I think is very clearly in front of us and, and really the political system uh, has not served to solve it. I'm going to end by just giving you some reason to be a little bit more optimistic about the future of democracy in the world uh, because I do think that there are there are changes that are underfoot that may actually change this analysis down the road, and that really has to do with the global economy. We're going through a major, major transition right now. Uh, you know, in the past decade, the so-called emerging market countries, and primarily China, you know, reached 50% of global output, and growth in Latin America, in sub-Saharan Africa, in East Asia was really being powered by uh, China together, you know, created a commodity boom that was lifting the boats of many people around the world, but it was also supporting authoritarian government, governments that could extract resource rents and therefore did not have to tax their own populations and therefore could not be held accountable by their own populations. That's Iran, Russia, Venezuela, you know, there's a list of countries uh, like that. Something big is happening. Uh, I think the slowdown in China 
is quite historic. Uh, I think it's much worse, certainly, than the government pretends. I mean, the government says they're growing at 6.9%. Most Chinese I talk to, businessmen, think that the rate is really substantially lower than that. Uh, and that has led to this collapse of commodity prices, beginning with energy. Uh, and in some sense, you know, the reason that authoritarian government seemed like a plausible alternative in the decade just past is that Russia, China, you know, Venezuela, all these other countries looked like they were doing well, uh, that they were growing, you know, uh, that they had strong governments and so forth. And that period is at an end. Uh, I, you know, it could also be a very dangerous period when you get this kind of authoritarian government that loses its economic performance legitimacy and then has to go back on nationalism or, you know, foreign adventurism in order to legitimate itself. So I'm not saying the world is necessarily going to be more peaceful, but I do think that the relative, uh, you know, prestige of these different models is is likely to change. Uh, and the United States is actually not doing badly, despite all of our Washington dysfunction, still an extremely entrepreneurial uh, economy. You know, we've got one of the lowest unemployment rates now in the developed world and so forth. And so things could change. Uh, and I think uh, I would say that in terms of my agenda for how to promote democracy worldwide, we got to fix Europe and the United States. You know, we, the, the institution, you can't do anything about the societies and uh, these kind of larger underlying social issues, but you can fix institutions and you can fix specific policies, you know, if you understand properly what the source of the dysfunction is. And I think that uh, is the agenda that is in front of all of us, both European and uh, American. So thank you very much for your attention and I look forward to questions. And So, thank you, uh, Frank. That was great, as always. Um, two questions. Uh, one, um, the—I mean—you talk a lot about the role of the state in controlling a geographic area, mm -hmm. but some uh, observers now are questioning how much the geographic area is as important as it once was. Which, of course, implies how important is the state. Some, like our New America colleague Prague Khanna, has talked yeah. about. Uh, you know, the power is becoming more diffuse. It's in one hand, it's uh, you know, governments at the at the national level are less powerful at the municipal level, maybe more powerful than you have uh, individual actors who have more wealth, more power. They are taking away from the power of the state. So I'm curious where you come down on that. And then the other uh, question I would just ask: uh, Anthony Downs wrote a lot about you know, in rational choice theory, difference between two choice um, systems, multiple choice systems, the US of course being a two choice system. Um, might the US benefit from having a more multiple choice system if we had a multi-party democracy? In other words, would the incentives yeah. of parties be different instead of it's you against yes. me, my party is always right, yours is always wrong. Yeah. If, if you make it a multiple choice, does that change that? Right, so on the Parag Khanna question, I, as, as an empirical matter, I think there's no question that power has been leeching away from not just states, but many other kinds of hierarchical institutions around the world. Uh, and that's a result, I think, of 
you know, a lot of social phenomenon, you know, it's the information revolution. So we know much more about what governments do. And when people get this kind of information, they don't like it for the most part in there. It makes them mistrustful of government and therefore less willing to grant them the kind of automatic legitimacy that they once were. Uh, it has to do with higher levels of ex uh, education, therefore higher levels of expectation of what governments should do for you. And in that respect, uh, there's this great asymmetry. So how many of you have ever woken up in the morning saying, ah, damn it, I'm so grateful that the garbage was picked up properly, you know, this morning? <laughs> Whereas the day that the garbage doesn't get picked up for some reason, you say, damn it, you know, what's wrong with this government? You know, so you've just got this problem of... Uh, uh, you know, expectations. Uh, and I think that some people, you know, then embrace this and say, this is great, this is citizen power, this means that governments will be more accountable. I think the actual result is mixed because there are certain functions that governments are absolutely required to do, particularly, you know, getting back to their fundamental uh, <laughs> characteristic, which is the ability to use force to enforce rules. Uh, so in this modern world, yes, it's true that you've got transnational corporations and transnational drug gangs and, you know, a lot of things moving back and forth. Who's going who's gonna to enforce the law? You know, that has to be done by a state on a territorial basis. And I don't think you can get away from that fundamental uh, function. And therefore, this weakening of governments, I think, is problematic. And it's also problematic in theoretical terms, like how do you hold, you know, I think Europeans are wrestling with, how do you hold Google accountable, you know, uh, to, Europe, to Europe because it's not located in Europe or it's kind of located in this, you know, vast, uh, vast ether. On the question of the electoral system, so my colleague at Stanford, Larry Diamond, has really been pushing for the United States to move to the uh, kind of li limited preference ballot that the Australians use, where you don't just pick your first choice, but you pick a second and third and fourth choice as well. And that would eliminate the uh, problem we had in Gore v. Bush, where basically Bush was elected because all of Ralph Nader's votes uh, subtracted from the ones that should have gone to Gore, and therefore he lost the state of Florida, and therefore he lost the election uh, as a whole. And so this should empower third parties uh, to rise. And, you know, Tom Friedman at the New York Times, a number of other people have been pushing, you know, to change to a different kind of electoral system. Now, I am happy to experiment with this, but I suspect that uh, it may not actually do any good. Uh, first of all, it, so the assumption is that there's actually this big group of moderate centrist voters out there that are just dying to be able to vote for a Michael Bloomberg or somebody in the middle of the you know, political spectrum, and I'm not sure that that's true. And what it may, in fact, do is empower the extremes, you know, to form yet more extreme parties, and then you can't actually form a majority government, and so you have to have a coalition, and you're still back at the same, you know, problems that, that you've got now. Uh, so maybe it'll work, but, you know, maybe not. Uh, Manfred Bischoff, I just would have uh, three questions. <laughs> Simply. <laughs> now, so first is, uh, it re you know, I'm still, even if you tried at the end to be somewhere optimistic, I'm still very pessimistic. 
for the simple reason you said one of the root causes for your optimism would be the slow growth in what we call the developing world. Mm -hmm. If that is true, I come to the first statement you quoted, uh, Gerhard was quoting, about refugees, about people fleeing the uneconomic failure in their countries yeah. and moving to where it's more successful. So there may be, you know, for me that is not hope, that is a threat. Mm -hmm. That if in those countries we don't have economic success, that those people will just go where there is economic success, they may have a better life. My second observation at the beginning, uh, when you were defining what you define as democracy, I asked myself, uh, and you said, you know, I said still in my mind, there are two ways to, only there's one way to change such a problem you described for the United States. That is grassroots developments and a wise government at that point in time. Now, say it may be, may be very accidental that this is going to happen. And I don't say it is a recipe yeah. for anybody to say, okay, now let's start some grassroots movement and mm -hmm. let's, be, uh, let's wait that some nice mm -hmm. government comes around. My question is, in how far do you believe that globalization also played a big role in the feeling of most of the people that the world has become so complex yeah. and so difficult. And you see in most of the developed uh, countries, globalization has at least made a minority far better off than they were before, but the majority doesn't feel it. Mm -hmm. If you look at the United States, uh, most of the middle class is even worse off than they were before. Yeah. yeah. The third question is, you asked, you said one of the one of the bases is also the rule of law, and that reminds me of a statement of a Japanese professor once when we were talking about development, where he said, "There are three things you need for development: it's a good teacher, a good policeman, and a good tax collector." Mm -hmm. yeah? Interesting enough, he never talked about any elections. You know, and some of my feeling is that, especially in the United States politics, the overemphasis on election instead of the rule of law has also been some of the root causes we have seen in those countries where you rightly pointed to the fact that we were never able to establish the government mm -hmm. because we too much emphasized elections instead of the rule of law mm -hmm. in the sense you define the rule of law, yeah. not using law. Now I finish. <laughs> okay. So on your first question about migration, I'm not sure that there's a strong immediate correlation between the rate of economic growth and the rate at which uh, people want to leave the country. Uh, sometimes, actually in periods of rapid growth, that's when people leave uh, because their expectations have suddenly been raised, but they're somehow not quite meeting them. Like in Korea, you know, you had this big outflow of migrants from Korea right in the period of the Korean economic miracle. Uh, so I just think that that's going to be a constant. It's probably not going to be affected so much by the commodity slowdown uh, and so forth. Now, with globalization, it produces winners and losers. Uh, it is not the general... It's wrong to talk about the middle class generally. There, there's a class divide that really is at the high school versus college level in the United States. People above that dividing line have done really, really well as a result of globalization. 
Uh, and so there's this huge class divide that's opened up, you know, between these two groups. And in most developing uh, developed countries, you know, working class people are a smaller proportion of the population. Uh, and they have definitely, I think, been hurt by globalization. And so everywhere you look, not just in the United States, but in Europe, you know, in Hungary, in Russia, in Turkey, I mean, who votes for these authoritarian populist politicians? It is all kind of lower middle class people that are not beneficiaries of globalization. In fact, may be threatened by the loss of jobs and, you know, and so forth. Uh, yeah, on the rule of law, well, that's what I was trying to say. I mean, I actually think that state capacity, uh, you know, is, is, is something that has been underemphasized by, uh, by the United States just because we don't like, you know, states and we tend to focus all of our efforts on elections and, and, and democracy. I think uh, that's true enough. The, the trouble with rule of law as an objective for how to implant it is we don't have any idea. <laughs> you know, we just don't have an idea. I mean, we don't understand how the rule of law arose in, you know, that's part of the reason I wrote these books was to try to teach myself about how this stuff came about. Uh, so, I, so I think you're right that you need balance. You know, you need all three of these things. If you just have a state, uh, that's not a good thing. Uh, so you need the state constrained by these other these other institutions. So, I was interested in listening to you talk um, to give some sort of hope that Donald Trump was actually part of a, a long tradition in American politics. But my question was whether or not you went as far as I was just reading a book by Robert Reich, who says that the oligarchs are actually undermining rule of law by using market power as political power to then deregulate, to undermine antitrust, to bust unions. Would you go as far as that it's not cyclical, but actually, or historic, but it's actually yeah, undermining so, the rule of law? Right. Uh, so in a way, that was what I was arguing, that collectively you do have these very powerful interest groups, uh, and they do have an undue influence. So, you know, like one example of this is this carried interest provision in American tax law, by which all these hedge fund managers get taxed at 15%, whereas everybody that earns their living, you know, by going to work has to pay a 35 or 37%, you know, tax rate. Nobody thinks that this is really justified except for the people that benefit from it, but you can't get rid of it because, you know, the lobby in favor of this is really, really powerful. So you do get these real distortions, I think, in representation. However, I think the rise of Donald Trump shows that actually these interest groups cannot determine elections because all of the big bucks in the Republican Party was behind Jeb Bush. It was not behind Donald Trump. And here he comes and upsets the, you know, he basically has taken over the Republican Party. Now, of course, he's a rich guy himself, but I just think that there's no cohesive group of oligarchs in the United States who are meeting in some closed room, you know, saying, okay, who are we going to, make president this year, you know, that, that's just not the way our system works. So there's still competition and it's still, you know, it's still an open system, but it is really not as nearly as representative as it could be or as it ought to be. Yeah. Hi, thanks so much for your talk. I just had a quick question. Um, Daniel Dresner wrote an article for the Washington Post about three days ago saying that Donald Trump's leadership and winning all of these um, primaries, are, uh, um, that it was, has to do with um, 
the collective action problem. Um, however, according to the median voter theory, he would not actually be someone who could win. And none of his policies would actually prevent this drug use or single parent family yes. homes. <laughs> so my question is, um, is there something else aside from that? Well, there's a lot of things that explain his rise. So I think the collective action problem just refers to the fact that uh, all of the so-called establishment or moderate Republicans were up till this past week, they've spent all of their energy attacking each other. And none of them would withdraw from the race, and therefore they split you know, the non-Donald Trump vote. Uh, so that was one, and it's just kind of an accident of who was running and, and the results of the first couple of primaries uh, and so forth. I think it goes without saying that Donald Trump's solutions do not in any remote way actually suit the interests of, you know, uh, of these people, uh, except, you know, just sticking it to the establishment. But, but, you know, he does not have a solution. This is, you know, this has been a consistent problem, I think, uh, for that group of voters is that they historically have tended to vote for Republican candidates whose economic policies actually make their situation worse. And uh, the reason that they've done it, this is this so-called what's wrong with Kansas problem that, you know, they, they're, they're loyal to the Republican Party on cultural issues, you know, guns, abortion, patriotism, uh, so forth. And the Democrats, as I said, just don't offer them uh, a home because they really are preoccupied with this kind of identity politics that doesn't include them as one of the identities that they particularly uh, want to cultivate. So, so I think there's a lot of complex reasons why, you know, Trump ended up on top. Thank you very much. Uh, there was one element in the progressive movement you explained, and that was uh, Supreme Court. People mm -hmm. like uh, Louis Brandeis, who didn't believe in big businesses running government, uh, they, they fought their battle and, and helped to bring mm -hmm. the progressive movement about. But when you look at the Supreme Court today, equaling money with free speech, do you see hope? Well, this is a subject that Gerhard can actually tell you much more <laughs> uh, knowledgeably about than I can, but it's, it's not true that the Supreme Court was a big help to the progressive movement. Uh, justices in, in the late 19th century were very conservative. They uh, invalidated a lot of progressive laws. I mean, one of the most famous was Lochner versus New York in, what, 1905? Yeah. Uh, where basically they threw out this child labor law saying that it violated freedom of contract. Uh, uh, so, uh, and actually that conservative court resistance to progressive legislation, you know, continued up through the New Deal, you know, and then Roosevelt had a big confrontation where he tried to pack the court and he backed down from that. But then I think the, the court realized that they had to back down a little bit as well. And so, it then shifted. So they played a, so this is, so this is in a larger perspective, this is part of the checks and balances system. Uh, there are very few countries in which courts have the kind of power to continue to adjudicate legislation that has been passed by the legislature the way uh, you do in the United States. In, in Europe, in a parliamentary system, when the parliament votes on a health care law, that's it then the government executes that law. In the United States, we, well, in the United States, by contrast, 
the law is passed by Congress, and then the people that don't like the law say, okay, now we're going to fight it in the implementation stage. We're going to launch lawsuits to invalidate the law. We're going to use administrative procedures to prevent the implementation of the law. And so the partisan you know, contestation never ends. It just never ends in the American system. Uh, so that's why I think in a larger sense, you know, the courts sometimes play a progressive role, sometimes not. But in aggregate, it's one of the veto points that tends to slow down the ability of the American system to act decisively. Thank you for your attention. Um, with respect for a quote uh, that I draw from uh, Richard Quest, actually, on CNN, he said that we're currently in a phase where we face four basic fundamentals. And in this regard, he couldn't see uh, whether or not democracy at all plays a role or has any leverage on it, those four issues, which would be lack of growth, um, demographic issues, overdebtedness of households, mm -hmm. state households, and private households mm -hmm. uh, together, and of course the lack of government to uh, yeah. deliver all over the world. What would you say in this respect? Does it matter at all whether it's a dictatorship, whether it's a democratically legitimate government? Sooner or later, every country needs to deliver to its people wealth or the promise to prosperity. How do we get further in this respect? Do we need some supranational approaches, uh, which currently, of course, like other problems and, and issues to be solved? What would, what would you regard as your approach? Thanks. Well, I, what I was trying to argue in the talk as a whole is that we need to focus heavily on state capacity to basically deliver these fundamental services. Uh, I completely contest the idea that democracy is, uh, is irrelevant uh, to this process because people want democracy. It's simply a fact that given the kind of levels of education and the expectations that people have, the idea that you could, in the democratic world, all of a sudden say, oh, actually, we're going to close the doors on all public processes. We're going to turn over decision-making to a small elite group. You're not going to know what they decide, but just trust them because they're going to make really good decisions and they will deliver the things that you care about. That it isn't going to happen in a million years. It's just not going to happen. Legitimacy is very firmly, uh, you know, on the side of ever-expanding, you know, public participation. That's just a fact of life. And I think the likelihood that the, you know, these Asian authoritarian systems are going to look more like, you know, Western ones than the reverse is is very likely to happen because that's, you know, that's I think one of the consequences of modernization. So. I think in a democracy, you have to use democracy to build up, you know, the state capacity to actually do these things. That's why I was giving you the example of the progressive era. How did we get to better quality government in the late 19th century? It wasn't by bypassing democracy. It was by using democracy and the desire that people have for effective government to actually reform the system. And I, I just don't see definitive, you know, way of proceeding in the, in the modern world. I have one question on China and your optimism. Yes. As the Communist Party is drawing its legitimacy from growth and, and nationalism, a lot of Chinese analysts argue that with the staggering economic growth, the government will be eventually more nationalistic. What is your stance on that? Well, it's already nationalistic. Uh, you know, one of the things that really worries me about China is that 
nationalism has become part of the legitimacy of the Communist Party, and they are simply much more assertive than they were at, before 2008. You know, they're militarizing the South China Sea in slow stages. They're very cautious, and they're not doing it in a hurry, but it's clear what they're doing uh, in that region. Now, uh, for a variety of reasons, you know, I think they've recognized that the model that got them up to this point simply has run out of steam. It's an export-driven model that was based on creating manufacturing industries by mobilizing a lot of peasant labor in the countryside and putting them in factories in big cities and uh, then selling that on world markets. And none of the features of that are still in place. There's a, they can't export you know, more than they're doing right now. Their costs are going up. They have no mobilizable labor uh, left. And so they've realized for the last, at least the last 10 years, that they have to be, uh, move to a more consumption-driven, domestic consumption-driven uh, economy that is based on increases in productivity. President Xi is not doing anything to promote that. Uh, if anything, he's moving in the opposite direction, you know, towards restriction on market activity, restrictions on personal freedom, uh, clamping down on universities and, you know, people that really don't, you know, toe the, uh, the party line. And it's really, uh, you know, questionable whether he, he truly understands what's necessary to carry China to the next stage of economic growth. If he cannot do this, then I think there's a real danger because nationalism then replaces performance as the basis of the regime's legitimacy. And that then leads to big collisions with China's neighbors, with the United States, with, you know, the rest of the world. So I'm, uh, you know, I'm quite worried about that part of the world because I think, you know, it, it could become much more unstable than it has been over the last 30 years. Okay, why don't we, yeah. Thank you. I wonder if I could ask you to revisit the, the moment in your lecture when you're kind of narrating the transition from a, a clientistic system to a, what you call a modern system. And in the case of the United States, you talked about this as being somewhat of an accident, uh, the case of Garfield being assassinated by a guy who wanted a job and the clientistic system didn't quite work out for him. The Congress got embarrassed and passed a series of laws um, uh, in that direction. That seems to me like a somewhat unsatisfying answer to the question of how you get from clientism to, um, to an impersonal, to, to, to a notion of the state which, is, which runs along impersonal lines. But I, but I, but I ask about that, so I, so I wonder if you want to say something more about that. But I ask about it because, particularly in the, in the current context, um, we don't have necessarily problems with clientism and nepotism per se, but we certainly have a context in which uh, the impersonality of the system seems to be at risk, mm -hmm. um, whether or not actors on the inside or the outside of the government. Um, and so, so I actually wonder whether, and this is kind of a second question, but I wonder whether the word modern to describe this kind of state system that you're talking about, which works along impersonal lines and the rule of law, is really the, the right word because it seems like the modern in that case only existed for about 25 years after World War II and so the modern existed in the past and, yeah. and maybe doesn't exist now. So um, the, the way you get political reform, I think, is it's the same everywhere. You need a grassroots movement. You need a popular, I'm speaking about democracies now. You need a grassroots movement. And there was a big grassroots movement 
in the 1880s in favor of cleaning up the system. They just couldn't get it through Congress because of the resistance of members of Congress. You need leadership uh, in the form of people that have an idea and a clear agenda and want to steer that popular anger in the right direction. But then, you know, the Garfield assassination was just a trigger. Uh, a lot of times you can't knock a system out of its equilibrium without having some kind of an exogenous shock. So in this case, it was an assassination. It could be a war. It could be a financial crisis. It could be a lot of other things that all of a sudden force people to think differently about the way uh, they're doing things. Uh, I had hoped that the financial crisis in 2008 would be a sufficient trigger to, you know, to trigger a much more thoroughgoing reform of the American system. And unfortunately, because the policymakers acted quickly and they put a floor under the, you know, the financial, uh, the economic fallout, uh, people kind of forgot about it uh, as if the crisis uh, hadn't happened. Now, uh, I defend my use of the term modern system. This is one of the big themes in, in both volumes of my book, is that a modern political system uh, has been achieved by many societies over time, but it is fragile because it's kind of unnatural. What is natural is to appoint your family members and your close friends to positions of power in the government. And unless there are very powerful incentives to not do that, that's what people are going to do. And that means that political decay, what I call political decay, which is the capture of state institutions by elites of different sorts is a kind of natural phenomenon. People will try to do this over time, and that means that a modern system needs to be renewed periodically. Uh, it's not a kind of stable equilibrium that once you get there, you're, you're always going to be like that. And so that's what I see happening in the United States. We had this patronage system in the 19th century. We got rid of it, and now it's come back in this different form where it's not a job in the post office, but it's, you know, the lobbyists with campaign contributions. And we've once again got to clean that system up. Uh, I mean, right now I don't see a path forward to that, but, you know, that's the task uh, I think that's ahead of us. Yes. As a German, I sometimes have suffered under accusation that we do too many things wrongly. But I, in the light of tonight's discussion, I have discovered that at least one thing we have done well. We sent you Trump on an <laughs> early basis, sufficiently early. Secondly, as a German who in his youth was re-educated democratically by your folks who had come over, uh, and measured against your criteria on a modern society democracy. Do you have some idea, with the necessary politeness, but nevertheless, about where, how we perform here? Where our strengths and our weaknesses are? Oh, that's are. easy. So that's an easy <laughs> question. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so... Uh, that will then be the last Yes, question. fine. Fine. So in other lectures, uh, I have asserted that there is no general crisis of democracy around the world. And one of my leading examples of that is your country, Germany, because I think German democracy has actually been working quite well. 
over the last you know 15 years or so. You've kind of got the opposite situation that the United States has. The U.S. is so polarized uh, and angry that we can't agree on anything. Uh, the criticism that's made here is that the two major parties are so similar and there's so much consensus that it's kind of boring and there's not really a lot of you know, serious political choices to be made. Uh, I would much, <laughs> I would trade your system for our system uh, any day. And it's also the case, you know, the, 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 uh, uh, the agenda, you know, 2010, you know, Schroeder's labor market reforms, that was very difficult, you know. Uh, there are many other democracies in which you would not be able to pull that off. Uh, and Germany did it, you know. So I think it's not the case that democracies generically cannot make difficult decisions or, you know, come to consensus on, on important policy issues. Uh, he, lost the he lost the election, so that's, that's right, but he did it. You know, the system, uh, the, the system did it and it performed fairly well. So I think you should, quite, you know, you should be quite pleased with, uh, you know, the way your system's been working in recent years. That was a nice conclusion. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Frank. That was a great performance. Frank arrived yesterday from California. Tomorrow morning, very early, he has to go to Frankfurt, and then he has to return to California. We are just extremely uh, grateful. Now, I have one criticism of your lecture and uh, its rhythm. In the last five minutes, you suggested that you would give us some reasons to be more optimistic. That should have lasted 15 minutes, uh, not five minutes. I'm still leaving pretty depressed on the whole. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to our lecture series, a podcast brought to you by the American Academy in Berlin. For more information, please visit our website, americanacademy.de. Our producer is Christina Gonzalez in Berlin, and the music for today's show is by our former Ingemar and Otto fellow in music, composer Elliot Sharp. I'm your host, R.J. McGill.